you for uh, giving Jerry the opportunity and the time to spend down at the Master's Mission, and especially with one particular candidate and the opportunity he had to pour uh, not just uh, his skill set into this young man, but to just spend time discipling him and teaching him lessons about life and what it is to follow Christ. And we pray that those lessons would stick with him and uh, that you would continue to prepare him for what it is you have in his future. We pray for the mission itself, that you continue to bless their trainings, bring them students, um, that you put uh, in their path to go out into the world to share the gospel with those who have not heard. We pray for Jim and Barb Teasdale who run that mission. Uh, we, we love them. We pray for their success, and especially as the leadership is going to be transitioning soon, we pray that uh, with the new leader, it would just continue to be a fruitful ministry and, uh, and be useful for the expansion of the kingdom of God. And this morning, we'll continue reading in Isaiah 55. It says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. And we pray this morning, Lord God, we thank you for one of your greatest gifts that you've given to us, your word in the scriptures. And we pray that by your scripture this morning that you would bless our lives and that you would cause us to see more of Jesus. Amen. So well, we're continuing in our study in the Gospel of Luke this morning. And so you can uh, turn in your Bibles to a passage before you in uh, Luke 19.45. Or you can just follow along with the text that's been printed for you in your bulletin. So, you know, there are a lot of things that uh, distract us in life. <clears throat> but some of the distractions that are the most uh, heartbreaking, if you will, are just things that distract people from the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And... Things that distract them from hearing it, distract them from believing in it, uh, distract them from obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the main things that distracts people is controversies. Controversies distract people. And those controversies might be religious controversies, or maybe a controversy about Christianity, or maybe it's just a controversy about in our life or in the world today. But controversies can preoccupy our minds, they can color the way we think about things, and often make discussions really unfruitful in getting to where we want to be in them. And so I think about you know, people that we're sharing the gospel with, and we really want them to truly hear the gospel, but not be distracted by all these other things that might be running through their minds so that they can really uh, go ahead and trust the Lord by repenting of their sin and putting their faith in Him. And controversies also can distract Christians. And it can distract us. We know that. We've probably succumbed to it ourselves at one point in our lives or another where controversies take over our minds and our thoughts and our hearts. And so the main thing fails to be the main thing. And we know that that main thing in our life is supposed to be the gospel of Jesus Christ and its clarity in our life. Well, this is the situation that we're going to find well, we found Jesus in as we've been looking at his life through the Gospel of Luke, but especially this last week that we're now entering into in the Gospel of Luke, we see controversies all over the place and how they really distract people from believing in him. So let me read to you our passage this morning, starting in Luke 19, 45. And Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple, 
The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for the people were hanging on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, Well, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, Well, if we say from heaven, he'll say, Why didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they're convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So in our passage today, Luke is showing us that Jesus has all authority from heaven as the teacher from heaven, the Son of God who has come, and His teaching is so powerful, and He is to be obeyed by all of the world. And so when we come to this passage, I'm sure the phrase that stuck out to you this morning, that stuck out to me, is people hanging on the words of Jesus in verse 48. We too hang upon the words of Jesus as His disciples and obey His teaching. And so as we enter this final week of Jesus on the earth, at this time frame, he enters the temple in a prophetic manner and acts as a prophet, and he's preparing the temple for his holy teaching that he will be delivering throughout Passion Week. And I think it's also wonderful that we find ourselves at this point in the Gospel of Luke after just finishing celebrating Easter and Palm Sunday, that whole time frame, because we go through that so quickly in a whole week but it's really just a couple days that we spend talking about the passages. Well, now we have the rest of the Gospel of Luke to really dig in and explore more deeply what took place during that final week with Jesus and eventually his cross and resurrection that would be our salvation. So in our passage this morning, we're going to learn in verses 45 to 48 at the end of chapter 19 that Jesus desires a pure worship of God. And then in verses 1 to 8 that he expects obedience to his authority. Now, before we get to the cross and resurrection, you'll notice how Luke takes us through in his gospel account. There's a brief ministry that Jesus performs at the beginning of the week in Jerusalem in chapters 20 through 21. And we're going to examine five controversies over the next few weeks and actually hear a sermon uh, before the Holy Passion actually begins. And it's from this first controversy that we're looking at today, which is a controversy about his authority, flow all the rest of the controversies. And it's going to help us keep the gospel central in our lives and in our ministries. So first of all, we learn that Jesus desires a pure worship of God. When we look in verses 45 through 48 at the end of chapter 19, Jesus again is acting, this is Monday of Passion Week, if you will, and Jesus acts as the prophet. And he comes to cleanse the temple. You know, Luke skips over the fig tree story and simply briefly records this example of Jesus' violence, if you will, emphasizing his condemnation of what was going on and how people were misusing the temple of God and how really they were failing to recognize the time of their visitation by the Messiah himself. Now, it's not portrayed as vivid in John chapter 2. You read about the temple cleansing there. That's when Jesus used a whip against people. Or even in Matthew and Mark, as they describe the temple cleansing, 
Jesus is overturning tables. And in Mark, Jesus even blocks people's way physically. Well, this is the second of two temple cleansings, I think, in Jesus' life. The first one took place in John chapter 2, is recorded there at the very beginning of his ministry, and now we are at the end of his ministry, and he does it again. And so to begin his final week, the first thing Jesus does is clean house. And after he cleans house, in verses 45 to 46, he's going to start teaching daily in the temple precincts. And so we begin then, again, I'll read 45 to you. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it's written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. So Jesus casts out these merchants that are selling sacrificial supplies. That's what they're doing during the Passover season. They're selling sacrificial supplies like wine and oil and salt and and animals like ox and sheep and doves. And he overturns the tables of the money changers. And the reason this is significant is because, you know, they were not only just collecting temple tax at the time, uh, but they were making an enormous profit on the money exchange. And that's because they weren't allowed to use any kind of coinage that would have pagan idolatrous mottos or images on them. And so they had to use a local currency instead. And so it's really set up to make a lot of money because they lose a lot in the exchange with this. And so this is also part of the reason Jesus is very upset. This is taking place in the Gentile courts of the temple, the outer courts, where it was all set up. And it's supposed to be a place where those could come to pray and be a part of worship, not where they have to battle merchandising religion all around them while they're trying to worship the Lord. And it prevented the Gentile peoples from worshiping as they should be able to do and would want to do. So a lot of people were upset. It wasn't just Jesus at this time frame. And so he was probably heralded by a lot of people as finally somebody does something and says something about this. And his righteous anger in the whole situation and explains then perhaps why he wouldn't have been apprehended immediately causing all this disturbance and violence when these people are setting this stuff up in, their, in this area. And Jesus, of course, doesn't comprehensively cleanse the temple. It's a symbolic action that he's doing here. And it would all happen, it would have happened very, very quickly. But why would he do this? And, you know, he quotes a couple passages from the Old Testament that are worth looking at here this morning, and you can study them more on your own. But he quotes Isaiah, first of all, about the core of worship and the fulfillment that God was planning in the fullness of times when his Messiah would come, when all the peoples of the world would be able to access him through his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we read in Isaiah 56, 6 and following, Also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even the, those I will bring into my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. The Lord God who gathers as the dispersed of Israel declares, yet others I will gather to them to those already gathered. And then he also quotes in the same line, Jeremiah 7, 11, which judges the hypocrisy of the people and the rituals. In fact, even really accuses them of apostasy, 
which is much worse than just hypocrisy. But he quotes the sharpest rebuke passage in all of Scripture. So if you're interested in reading that, all of Jeremiah chapter 7, that is the most scathing rebuke you will find in the Bible. Jeremiah's speech at the temple gate is recorded there. So Jesus is quoting from that, saying that the people are as bad as they were then. And so in Jeremiah 7, starting in verse 8, he says, Behold, or the scriptures say, Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known, and then come stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered that you may do all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. And so this phrase, den of robbers, or robber's cave, covers both of these offenses, that they're misusing the temple, and they're abusing other people. Of course, the misuse of the temple is, is the greatest of offenses, and the temple, you see, had become a place to hide their sin. So they would spend all the time outside they had in the temple, or during the week, let's say, committing all sorts of sins, not even the ones named here, but beyond that. And then they would cover it up with worship, and they'd show up in the temple pretending as if they didn't offend God, or he didn't see God, or he obviously doesn't care because he didn't kill me yet, and so then they would proceed to offer worship. That's what was going on. That's what Jesus is accusing people in his own day of. And he's really saying that they're a bunch of hypocrites because they act like they're pursuing holiness, but really their pursuit is just doing religious things, religious rituals. And some people today, you know, do the same type of a thing. They use attendance at church, or religious activities that they're a part of to really cover up for sins that they're committed to doing in their life. The same thing happens today. But the people of God, we should be more committed to grow into holiness and, and not presume upon God's grace and mercy. Well, then Jesus acts as one possessing great authority over the temple, and so his actions really prefigure what's going to come soon anyway. So they weren't using the temple the right way. And so, God's going to destroy the temple in just a few decades. And we'll read about that, actually, and uh, we'll read about it a little bit, chapter 19, but we'll read more about it in chapter 21. And so, another prophecy is going to be fulfilled, and that's from Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Now, there's certainly a lot more that's going to happen, of course, when Jesus returns and brings in the ultimate of purification and blessing for his own people and judgment upon those who are hypocrites, and those who don't obey him. But the coming suddenly to his temple that, that took place during this week on Monday was pre-predicted in the book of Malachi. And so we read in chapter 3, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap, 
and he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner and his wages and the widow and the orphan and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord. So you can see Jesus was extremely zealous for the glory of God in the temple at the beginning of this week. And then he starts teaching daily because now the temple's cleansed, you see. It's ready for the Son of God to appear and to start teaching. It's made ready and acceptable. And so we read, he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people, though, were seeking to destroy him, but they didn't find anything that they could do, for the people were all hanging on his words. So this is a summary statement of Luke, as we've seen often. So now Jesus, every day, he's going into the temple to preach, Monday through Thursday in this final week. And then he's lodging outside with his friends every evening, and he goes back in and he teaches in the daytime. And this will be his time of final words of appeal to the people that he's been speaking to for these last three years. It was the last chance for these people to hear the gospel of salvation and to believe in him. It was also an opportunity that his opponents were looking for, but yet it wasn't really quite right the time and the moment for them. But we see that the priestly leaders and other religious leaders, part of the Sanhedrin, they're seeking to destroy Jesus, to murder him. You see, they already have all the charges planned and the fake trial that they're going to put him through and how they'll eventually be able to kill him. That's all set up. And so we'll see that unfold in the coming chapters. But they couldn't uh, really move in quite yet because there were too many people that really wanted to hear Jesus teach. And so Jesus purified the temple of God for his teaching as the Son of God, and by doing so, he's directly challenging and threatening the religious leaders. And in these days, as we'll read about what he taught, he taught on a lot of controversial subjects, but controversies that were first introduced by others, and he'll win every single little debate, and he'll infuriate his opponents. So we learn at this point in the story that Jesus really wants pure worship of God where people can, and we should be concerned about their ability to pray and hear the word of God. And notice Luke's description again. They were all hanging on the words, on Jesus' words in verse 48. They were spellbound by Jesus. That's because he's a powerful teacher. It's because he's the very son of God. And most of these people, though, were probably still clueless and misguided, but they're interested nonetheless in what Jesus has to say. But, you know, Luke wants us to observe how often it has been the case, as he's presented his case throughout writing this book, that people do hang on Jesus' words, on his teachings, while other people are always present, it seems, to dissuade them from belief, to distract them from paying attention, as we will see. And, you know, and it wasn't just then, in the days of the Bible. That happens all the time today. People try to distract and dissuade people from believing so don't let others move you away from Jesus and his teaching and his clarity and power if you're being drawn these days. Don't let people do that. And realize that, that when this happens, you know, as a believer, you can be very active in countering with Scripture and be helpful to those people that are interested 
so that they can continue pursuing God. So Luke wants us to mainly see here and sense the divine power of Jesus as a teacher and its truth and its authority of what he teaches and how it would really captivate millions of people around the globe starting not very long after you know, this book was written. And how think about how it's captivated you. That should be a great description of who we are as Christians. We hang on the words of God. We too hang on those words. We love Scripture. We love studying the Bible. And as disciples, we want to obey what we find there in the Scriptures. And that's the next lesson. It's not only that Jesus desires us to purely worship God, but he expects obedience to his authority in verses 1 to 8 in chapter 20. And so now the controversies begin, starting in chapter 20. And they're going to go through chapter 21. And the first controversy is about where Jesus gets his authority from, to do the things he did, to say the things he did. And it's the centerpiece, really, of all the controversies that would come. So first we see that Jesus gets challenged in verses 1 to 2, and then in verses 3 and 4, he counters that challenge. And finally, in verses 5 to 8, the enemies get caught in their own trap. And so the story continues. One day, as Jesus was teaching... Uh, the people in the temple, teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. And so again, Jesus is teaching. Remember, he did the cleansing on the first day, and then he teaches, he rests, he comes back in, starts teaching again one of these days. And he's making his final appeals to people to believe on him as the Messiah. I mean, he would be soon dying for their sins and, and being raised again for their eternal life. So he's imploring them to put their faith in him for their salvation. And Luke, of course, in writing his gospel, that's the whole reason he's writing is to implore everybody who reads it or hears it, like you and me, to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this official delegation then from the Sanhedrin, which is the body of ruling religious leaders at the time, they approach Jesus and challenge his authority, and they do that because that's their job, in a way. Their job was to approve of teachers, uh, teachers of the people, and they challenge his authority as a prophet, especially a so-called Messiah, as people were saying about him, and he seems to have been claiming about himself, and they're challenging his authority basically on what he just did the day before or a couple days before, cleansing the temple, causing all that ruckus, challenging him for how he decided he was going to enter Jerusalem. Remember that on Palm Sunday, just a few days earlier in the storyline, that he would come to the city like that? And then how he would perform healings, and now he's teaching the people, and they want to trap him. They want to find out, and so they ask, well, what kind of authority do you really have, and who gave it to you? Is he really a prophet, the Messiah? Says who? I mean, they haven't decided officially and voted on the fact that he is the Messiah. From where does he get his authority? I mean, who gave it to him? What man? I mean, we didn't give it to him. And surely it couldn't be God because we know that that's not the case. So maybe he gets it from demons. Well, this should lead to a charge of blasphemy pretty soon in their thinking. I mean, that's the whole point of the discussion is to trap him. And so they think and they hope that they're going to get him through this. But Jesus counters uh, masterfully in verses 3 to 4. So he answered them, well, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? So Jesus' response, you might think, is avoiding the question, but it's actually a more of a direct answer 
than a direct answer. So this is what would be known as typical rabbinical parlance, or in other words, the way they talk at the time, the way they argue with each other, the way they would speak with each other, carry on discussions. And so Jesus is really going on the offensive here against them. So he answers the question with a question and tying the answer to his question to the answer to their question. So he's not avoiding the question. He's actually giving an even more direct answer, and they know it. That's why they don't like it. He's avoiding the debate by not answering the question directly because he doesn't care about the debate. It's already settled. And so by asking the question that he's asking, he's just declaring in their face that he is the Messiah. That's what he's doing here. Um, By bringing up the baptism of John and John the Baptist and asking, well, where did he get the authority from? Jesus and his ministry, we know, are intimately tied to the ministry of John the Baptist. In fact, Luke's gospel, the whole first three chapters, the introduction to the book, remember, it's going from part of John the Baptist's story to part of Jesus' story, back to John's story, back to Jesus' story, because he's showing us that these ministries are intricately tied together. And in chapter 7, there's a bold statement about this fact. Everybody knows who would have been listening exactly what Jesus is doing, because John is the preparer of the Messiah, and Jesus is the Messiah. And that's what's going on here. And so both of them get their authority from the Lord God and from the Scriptures. So the religious leaders, they already decided that they don't really believe in John, and so even less so than in Jesus. And if they did believe in John, well, then they would be believing in Jesus. That's the point. We've heard that said before or at least they'd be seriously thinking about Jesus and seeking after the truth at this point. And so they get caught in their own trap. And that's what happens in verses 5 to 6 as it's recorded for us. And they discussed it with one another saying, well, if we say from heaven, then he's going to say, well, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, well, all the people are going to stone us to death for they're convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered him that they didn't know where it came from. And then Jesus said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So just to recap, I mean, that's just what they're thinking about and talking about. It's like, well, what are our options? You know, I mean, it's a, it's a, they're stuck because if they say from heaven, well, then we really should be repenting at John's message and believing his message, and he was pretty clearly talking about the Messiah that was on the scene. But if we say his authority is from men, meaning from only from man, well, then we're going to get killed by the people because they love John. He was leading the spiritual revival in the desert, and people went out and believed in him, and they're anticipating the Messiah. That's why they're there, listening to Jesus. You see, most people believed in John at the time, or at least respected him very highly, and they still were considering his message, which is that Jesus is the Messiah. So they equivocate in their answer about the question because of the public situation, and they say, well, we don't know, as if somehow they're still thinking about it. Or still considering the question. But they've already decided in their minds and hearts that they're going to reject Jesus anyway. They've already got his trial and death planned. But really, you see, they're just not interested in the truth. They want Jesus gone. And so since they refuse to answer his question, well, then he refuses to answer their question. But everybody knows that the question's been answered. Because they rejected John, he rejects them. And Jesus wins this little game. And his answer is obvious, it's very bold and clear, and he's saying that both John's authority and his come from God himself. And John 
is the prophet prophesied about who would be the prophet that came right before the Messiah and that Jesus, that he himself, is that Messiah. So by the way in which Jesus dealt with this challenge, it becomes really obvious that he expects people to listen to him and to his authority, and he's not really interested in these little intricate debates that they haven't been able to figure out, but that he just declares with truth and authority what the answers are. You know, just like Jesus, just like the religious leaders at the time, you know, people often do similar things today. They cop out on making a decision on Jesus Christ. I mean, sometimes they'll even cover their hostility with an appearance that they're still intellectually considering it and who he is. But their evasion of the gospel is really hypocrisy. And, of course, God often exposes that in judgment in various ways. I remember on a number of years ago, on one particular uh, mission trip to East Asia I was on, ran into a common phrase among young adults that we were trying to witness to and start churches among, and that was this phrase, I'm too busy to think about it right now. You know, too busy to think about it right now, that gospel that you're talking to me about, that Jesus you're talking to me about. And I wondered to myself, huh, that's interesting. We sort of hear the same thing here, but it really stood out. And so we had to come up with a way to respond to that, and Really, we came up with the idea, it's like, well, how about you just take the time you need, but you get started in thinking about it. Thinking about something maybe we give you to read, or thinking about it and praying with it with this friend of yours that's with you today. And so, people need to be challenged to not evade the question. And whatever their excuse, and sometimes it's as simple as, I'm too busy, my life's too busy, it's crazy, I don't have time to go to church, you know? Well, challenge them to at least take the time that they have to start thinking about the gospel and give them some material and continue your conversation with them. Now, Jesus' authority comes from God here because he's his only son and he's the only Messiah. And so he's the only true teacher from God for life and for the whole world. And we too hang upon all of his words and want to obey his teachings. Well, above all this morning, we should leave with a renewed sense to humble ourselves before our teacher from heaven, that is Jesus Christ. But, you know, we don't want to be guilty of usurping his authority or abusing his teachings. Um, very common for people to use Jesus for their own words, for their own ideas, and they can easily misinterpret and misuse him. But we want to be people who submit to Jesus, who learn from him and obey him. We want to constantly be reforming ourselves and even becoming more acceptable in our worship to God. So, the simplest application and the most memorable one, I think, today is just simply hang upon the words of Jesus. And to hang upon the words of Jesus can be legitimately expanded to all of Scripture. I mean, there's a need for obedience to Scripture as we consider it and what we do with these words of God in the whole Bible that we seek to understand by our Bible studies and our time in prayer and our time in reading. We don't want to be people that are just fascinated with Jesus or just fascinated with the Bible, but we want to do things like repent and believe and obey and follow and be filled with hope and be filled with joy and to make disciples, etc., etc. But you see, obedience is really the key to learning Scripture. It's not just understanding the words or the background or the meaning or just constantly pumping information into our brains. 
That's not the key to obedience. You have to start. You have to walk. You have to practice. And we all need God's grace in this area in our lives to become more obedient. You know, it's hard to have a proper sense of obedience, I think, in our culture today to feel this obligation like we really should. Because we immediately think, when we, especially in evangelical churches, when we talk about obedience, sometimes we might immediately think, well, is that salvation by works that you're talking about? Or is this some new form of legalism that's being introduced? Of course, sometimes that's true. Uh, people often will do that. They'll use that phrase to introduce their own forms of legalism. That's not really true Christianity. But good obedience then, you see, suffers by being misinformed from this. And we also tend strongly in our society to not really feel much of an obligation to obey anyone. And if we do, we don't usually talk about it that way. We talk about it as a choice to obey, right? Because then that keeps the authority where? Right here, right? That's where the authority resides. So we also tend to think of ourselves naturally to possess some kind of a moral superiority over other authorities. So that comes from somewhere in our culture today too, but there tends to be this, this sense that I'm automatically morally superior in my thoughts and my ways than any authority God puts in my life, whether it's government or school or sports referee, you know, or in church, wherever it might be. But you see, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, even throughout church history, there's a heavy emphasis on obeying God and other authorities in our lives. Of course, that's a topic for a different day. But there's a fairly light emphasis in American evangelicalism today on obedience. But we know we need to change, and we know that we need to continually be submitting ourselves to the Lordship of Christ in our life. But how do we do that? You know, we can't just say it and it's going to happen. We have to actually take steps. And so a couple things you might do is the simplest one, is the easiest one, is just start practicing it. You know, you read something you should be obeying, well then do it. And see if God blesses you and encourages you that you are pleasing Him. Of course, also, I think we need to pray ourselves into the right posture. And that's one of the great uses of prayer, is to pray for a proper sense of what it means to really sense an obligation to obey God. You know, now, we don't want to just talk about what it might be the proper way or be worried about legalism or whatever it might be, but to really pray that God would give us that sense. And then third, we can also pray for a sense of its goodness. Because sometimes, you know, we just talk about obedience. Well, that just sounds dark and dreary, you know, or nasty or something. But to pray for a sense of its goodness and its rightness and its pleasantness and its desirability and the joy in it, because that's how Scripture ultimately portrays the value of our obeying God, is it has all these blessings in our lives. So let me pray for all of this, all of us for this. And Lord Jesus, we do come before you this morning, and we are ones who hang upon your words. And all the words of God's scripture that's been given to us, you are the teacher from heaven, the one who speaks truth, the one who revealed God to us in his fullness, one who actually preached the gospel with the clarity that we need to know and continually need to meditate upon. And we pray this morning for ourselves that you would give us the, the courage and, and the, the desire to obey more, maybe in areas that the Holy Spirit's even convicting us at the moment, and that 
you would move us to pray for a proper sense of how we should obey you and following the scriptures as they teach us and just show us above all the goodness of all of this, the rightness in your sight of it and the joy that you bring into our lives and, the, and the, really the profitability, the fruitfulness that, that comes from living this way before you. Lord Jesus, you are the only true teacher from God on life and ministry. And we want to continue hanging upon your words as your disciples and obeying your teaches, teachings. Would you make this true in our lives here at Calvary Church? And we pray this for your glory among us. Amen.